0: All right, let's go First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would actually love to fix that. We like giving Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we believe that uh, He uses His Scriptures to, to, to show you who He is and to affect your life and to change the way you think and see the world and... And so we're trying to come up with creative ways around here pretty often about getting people to press into the scriptures. And so uh, it's hard to do if you don't have a copy yourself. There's lots of free options available online, but we also have some really nice hardcover ones that we like to give away around here. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, come talk to me uh, and we can uh, fix that pretty quickly and pretty well. Uh, So we returned last week to our effort to walk through the book of First Corinthians together. If you remember that, uh, we had shut it down for the holidays just before uh, Thanksgiving. We walked through, you know, we did Thanksgiving stuff, we did Advent stuff, we did beginning of the year stuff, all that kind of stuff. But all that stuff is now over. We are back to regular rhythm, so it was time to pick Corinthians back up. And, and if you're new here, uh, Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. We think it was written somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. Uh, Paul held, held to begin the church in Corinth, uh, we think in the late 40s. Uh, he spent about a year and a half there, 18-ish months, uh, before he moved on to other places to start new work in those other places. Uh, and it had only been a few years since he had been uh, at this church. Uh, maybe three years since he had been there. All that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so he moved uh, from place to place to place. But he he kind of saw Corinth as this special home for him, this place where where he longed to return to as often as possible. Place that he loved dearly. And so Corinth was a town that he knew incredibly well. And the church in Corinth, well, they were no strangers to him. They, they, they weren't some kind of isolated group he had heard about and, and, and heard some stories of. They were a group he knew well, and they, he knew the, the virtues and the vices of the city. He, know, he knows what drove the culture of that place. And so Paul knows the Corinthians. He, and so the two Corinthian letters, they're incredibly personal for him. Like Romans, Romans, we studied Romans before. Romans is is very technical and kind of standoffish. Paul, as far as we're aware, had never been to Rome by the time he had written the letter. And so there's not a lot of personality in there other than him spelling out the gospel in logical detail. But Corinthians, man, it's just soaking with heart. It's full of of emotion that Paul desperately wants the Corinthian church to to figure some some things out. And and so he loves them. He wants to see them walk in wisdom and in in maturity. And the problem, though, with that is that the Corinthian church, man, that's not what they were. They weren't wise. They they weren't mature. They, they They were incredibly immature, actually. What makes it worse, though, is that they thought themselves to be incredibly mature kind of like a teenager, right? They, they thought they had the world figure it out when they very much didn't. All right? Some of y'all are laughing because you get it. <laughs> That's kind of the, the culture of the Corinthian church. They thought they had the world figured out. They thought they walked in wisdom. They thought they walked in maturity. And all the adults in the room knew otherwise. All right? And so this overconfidence, the Bible's word for it is just pride. We can pretty it up by making it sound different, but that's just what the Bible calls it. It's pride. And it led them to fail as a church in several ways. They were marked by extreme sin. They were marked by infighting. uh, They they celebrated and tried to exalt themselves even over things that clearly displeased God. What What a fun church to be hanging out in, right? So the trajectory that that Paul sets out to confront them with is is this idea that we've been referring to that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world. Different things are valued. Different things are are pursued. Different things are celebrated and rewarded. The king of this kingdom, the the one we worship in this kingdom, like think about it, he, he rose to his throne by dying gruesomely on a Roman cross. Naked, bloody, and scarred not exactly respectable i mean how many how many real world kingdoms can you think of off the top of your head that have that story and so it's intentionally upside down paul calls the cross a stumbling block to jews and folly to the gentiles in other words it's the exact opposite of what the world tends to think is respectable and worthy of chasing after the exact opposite God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all of the kingdoms of this world. It's disorienting, and it's hard to put your trust in. And so either, either, you've you got a question to answer in this moment. Once you figure out that it's upside down, you've got to answer a question. Either A, God doesn't know what he's doing, or B, God might be the only one who knows what he's doing. Right? Right? That's the question, the watershed question that you eventually have to answer. And so uh, it's a massive, massive question. And so the question that we've been trying to discipline ourselves to ask in order to prepare ourselves to answer that massive question is this. Okay, but is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Is it, does, it, does it have eternal promises Eternal realities in an otherwise fading world. And if the answer to those questions are yes, well then maybe the awkwardness is actually worth the price. Maybe it's something we could press through. And so, you ready to see where Paul takes us next? We, we discovered last week uh, in chapter 5 that the leadership of the church had failed to handle an incredibly significant sin issue among those inside the church. It was an issue that Paul points out that even the pagans would have figured out how to do right. Even, even the lost would have handled correctly. Not even the pagans would have tolerated what the, what the Corinthian church was tolerated, but, in, but instead of, of addressing it at the level of severity that it actually deserved, they instead went the other way. They ran headlong into, into, uh, in the direction of celebrating them of that sin and, and like even patting themselves on the back for how gracious and, and patient they were towards the, the sinner in, in that moment. And so Paul calls them arrogant. Not exactly a friendly letter, right? How many times have you accused someone of being arrogant in a letter? <laughs> Paul calls them arrogant. He says instead of celebrating, they, they instead should be mourning. They should be heartbroken over this. Something tragic has been lost, and they need to start putting in the, the, the painful work of restoring it. It was time to win back the integrity of their gospel proclamation. It was time to, to win back the integrity of that mutual call to repentance and salvation that can only ever be found in Jesus. And yeah, the work is really hard. Really hard. In fact, it's probably a lot easier to ignore the problem, and, but it's culturally advantageous even to, to continue to overlook it. But the cause of the gospel had been harmed by their failure to deal with sin in the way that they should. and Paul points that out. And at the end of the day, that loss, that loss tells us something because that loss either burdens them enough to light a fire under them or there might be a more much bigger problem at hand. Right? If if the, the idea that the cause of the gospel has been damaged by their action doesn't instigate some things in them, perhaps we have a bigger problem to deal with. So for those of you who, uh, who've been here when we studied Romans together, or maybe you've been here long enough for us to have studied Ephesians together, um, do you think the Apostle Paul might be prepping them for that larger conversation? Think he might be loading the barrel for that bigger discussion. So, if we were to just gloss over uh, chapter five and into chapter six, uh, you would think that there's a weird transition here. Uh, if we were just kind of speed read through it, it would look like the apostle Paul is changing subjects. Um, problem is Paul doesn't really do that in his letters. He tends to lead from one subject to the next, not exactly put one thing down and pick one thing up. And so I believe that he's taking a taking a step in this deeper discussion. Um, there's a connection here that I think we need to look for. So look at uh, with me at verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, "'When one of you has a grievance against another, "'does he dare go to law before the unrighteous "'instead of the saints? "'Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world?' And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Okay, so Paul brings up another failure within the, this young church. He says that, that whenever they, they have a grievance with each other, they, they go running off to secular courts in order to solve it, in order to handle it. It says that they go to law, which seems weird in our culture to call it that, but that's what he calls it. They, they run off to these courts, and, but don't think major criminal cases here. Think small claims courts. That's kind of the the tone of what's going on. Petty disagreements over who owns what, how much they should be paid for something, libel cases over something that somebody said that they didn't like, those kind of issues. And then every time those issues pop up, they go running off to some kind of local magistrate to handle, to settle the, the issue for them. It would have been incredibly common in their day for them to handle inheritance cases this way. All right? So so there were customs and there were laws that, uh, about how inheritance should be handed down. But, but, I mean, second son in line doesn't really like that custom, so he can go do something about it, right? So he goes to the judge, and the judge gives a ruling, right? C- can we be honest? If, if there's, a, there's a pattern of suing each other in your family... <laughs> Your family's jacked up. <laughs> right? Can, can't you just picture two brothers bickering about who's gonna get what out of dad's stuff? We laugh, but it's tragic, right? That's heartbreaking. There's no way of sugarcoating it. Y'all got problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, so, somebody needs to step in when people can't figure out what is right, right? Somebody needs to step in and settle the issue. Two people are bickering. We've got we got to have a third party here. It's important to note that in Greek culture, there were no juries. There wasn't even really a system to establish proper evidence. What you had was a judge. And that judge made their... Their rulings made their living, really, by knowing powerful people. Usually a greasy hand was involved. So this isn't really even about justice. It's about who has more leverage. Family's getting better, isn't it? There are certainly laws and customs to uphold, but if you knew the magistrate and the guy you're taking into court didn't, I guy was in trouble. So Paul gets back the report that the Corinthian church members are making frequent use of these public courts. He says that they dare to go to law before, he calls them the unrighteous. There's bickering, there's infighting among them, and they go to those outside of the church body to settle it. Hey, who thinks that's going to go well? You might think that's a positive thing. I think that's good PR for the cause of the gospel. So Paul asks, "Do you, do you not know that the saints will judge the world?" He asks very sarcastically, hey, "Don't you know?" And there are several layers buried in that question that we need to flesh out. For one, he calls them saints. Saints are literally the exact opposite of the unrighteous. Says so you're going to the unrighteous. But you're supposed to be saints. You're supposed to be the righteous ones. He says that... that, that that's what, that's what a saint is, a called out one, a holy one. And so, I know we talk about this every single time, just about it seems that we come to this word in the Bible, but our Catholic heritage in New England usually confuses this idea for most of us. Regardless of what might pop into your head whenever you think of the term saints, whenever you hear that word, saints are not some venerated class of Christians that have been elevated by the church because they managed to live more holy than everybody else. That's not what a saint is. The idea that Anyone at all, literally anyone at all other than Jesus would ever have enough holiness to spare with others is anti-gospel. It's literally the opposite of the, what the Bible tells us. Those that get called saints by certain denominations, man, they they needed desperately needed the grace of God as much as you and me do. Desperately needed it. Now, whenever the Bible uses the word saints, it's talking about those who have been declared righteous because they have been clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. In other words, a Christian. And So to create some kind of higher tier of super Christians, it's not only something that the Bible never does, it also, at the very same time, robs normal Christians, you and me, of the very status that God saw fit to declare upon us through Jesus' finished work. It takes people who have been declared holy and makes them not holy anymore. It makes them not the called out ones anymore. And so if you're keeping track on the old theology scoreboard at home, that also means that you now have something extra to hold over people's head that they have to chase after. Gee, I wonder how that could be leveraged. That's for free. Back to saints. I'm off my soapbox. Saints don't... They don't just sit around doing, you know, twiddling thumbs saintly style. they got work to do. they got a job to do. So Paul says that they will one day judge the world. Hey, um, didn't, didn't Paul say last week that it wasn't the church's job to judge those outside the church? I mean, I was here. I think I remember pointing that out. So did, did Paul contradict himself in like four verses? I mean, we've got to deal with that, right? Just, a, just a, at the end of chapter 5, he, he makes it very clear. It's not the church's job to judge the world. And now, beginning of chapter 6, we're in verse 2. You Do not do, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So, so what's going on there? Well, I think the answer is found in the phrasing that Paul uses to introduce the idea. He says, do you not know? And man, you better get real used to that phrasing because you're going to see it everywhere in Paul's writings. You're going to see it a lot in the rest of 1 Corinthians as well. Um, But it's not just a 1 Corinthians thing, you see it in Romans, you see it in 2 Corinthians. Uh, The Apostle James whips it out in his letter, but the true OG of this phrase is Jesus himself. All right? He drops it over and over and over again throughout the gospel accounts. Sometimes, though, he prefers to use its close cousin. Have you not read? And Every time, no matter who's using it, no matter what the situation, every time, the idea is that you would have known better if you'd been paying attention. That's the tone here. If you had read your Bible more carefully, if you had done the simple things that God had called you to do, you wouldn't be scratching your head right now. You would know what I'm talking about. This wouldn't be confusing to you if you'd only been paying attention. If you have one of those fancy Bibles with the cross references, it may point to Daniel 7 here. Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has a vision and pulls in a consistent theme that we see in apocalyptic literature. Uh, It's the idea that God's people will one day be elevated and reign along with God when he finally comes to his throne. That That God's people are not sitting on the sideline as some kind of peanut gallery, some kind of fly on the wall as God dispenses perfect justice. No, we actually get to play a role in the ruling. Daddy takes us to work. And we get to work alongside of him. We're not the king. We're not the judge. But the good king elevates his people to rule alongside of him. And so Paul here, he, he points to that far off reality and then that has been promised to us over and over again, promised to the church over and over again, that one day God will draw his people near and that justice will be finally and fully enacted. So speaking to a church that prided themselves on, if you remember, a very public perception of wisdom, they thought themselves... Mature, they thought themselves wise in a culture that highly valued that. Paul, speaking to this church body that prided themselves on a public perception of wisdom, Paul sarcastically asked them why they're so incompetent. You think you're wise, but you're incompetent to judge such trivial matters. Don't you know that you'll one day judge the world? can't seem to handle adjudicating some petty stuff in your own house? What's going on, Corinth? I thought you were high and mighty. I thought you had it figured out. What you doing letting local magistrates handle your business? The Corinthians, they believe themselves to be mature. They believe themselves to be spiritually wise, but all the adults in the room are watching them trying to figure out why they haven't figured it out yet. but it also gets worse. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So it's been my experience that people tend to get hung up on this judging angels line. Uh, And and I get it. It sounds kind of awesome, right? Like judging angels? Okay. I can get excited about that. Um, something maybe we ought to pay attention to. But, but listen, I, I think getting hung up on this phrase is, is problematic for two different reasons. One, we're not completely sure what exactly Paul means by that phrase. Uh, there's a couple of different really sound options there. And so we're not 100% sure what exactly he means by judging angels. And two, it's problematic for, for a second reason. Because whatever Paul does mean, it's not the point of what he's talking about. It's a passing illustration to a larger point. So the debate, the debate part, um, either a, either a, Paul means judge in the in the sense that we kind of all normally think of a judge giving a ruling, declaring guilt, enacting punishment, and and so if that's what he means, we now have a new problem to deal with because which angels are we judging? We got to figure that out because it's not specified, right? It doesn't say all the the fallen angels. It doesn't say. All, it just says we'll judge angels. But do do unfallen angels need judging? And so, it's it just kind of a rabbit trail of things that we got to figure out. And it's not necessarily bad. And it may be what he's talking about. But it just, I mean, we're not going to figure it out today. Um, and so some think some think that he's talking about the end of days judgment where. Will sit with God as he declares guilt and punishment over Satan and the rest of however many fallen angels are with him. Sounds awesome. But then there's option B. Some theorize that Paul means judge in the more Old Testament sense of kingship. Think the book of Judges, right? And so the judges were, were a type of kings. And so, uh, the same end of days reality, the redeemed, bearing God's image, uh, have been elevated status wise to be rulers over the rest of created things, which would include the angels. That's what Paul means. Awesome. That sounds really cool too. But no matter which one it is, really smart, really Jesus-loving, Bible-loving people can't seem to agree on which one it is, but regardless of which one it is, Paul is simply alluding to the future reality to point out how ridiculous it is that these supposedly mature Corinthians would so easily give up their rights to rule over earthly things. Don't you know what God has created you to be and what He's promised is coming down the pipe for you? Why would you, why would you balk on this? They handed it off as if it didn't matter to, to those who have zero standing in the church. The, the unrighteous cannot, and I mean that clearly, cannot rule in a way that is consistent with the righteous. They can't. They're incapable. Now, there's a giant disclaimer here that should be obvious. but Unfortunately, it tragically isn't. Uh, we're still, still talking about trivial things here. Um, there have been people in church history who have pointed to this passage of Scripture and tried to argue that what Paul is saying here is that it's the church's job to handle all issues, including serious criminal offenses as well, and and that the church should uh, should handle those things in-house too. And and that's not even close to true. For one, it ignores other very explicit things that Paul has said about the proper role of government, and who should handle the sword and all that kind of stuff. If you want to take a trip down a theological rabbit hole, you can Google uh, Abraham Kuyper and Sphere Sob sovereignty, uh, sovereignty. Uh, we, can, we can brew a pot of, co- pot of coffee and just kind of sit down for hours and talk about that. It's a fun stuff, all right? Um, short version, though, is this. Short version is this. That God made the church to do church things, and he made the government to do government things. Both of those entities are supposed to submit to God and stay out of each other's business, all right? That's fierce sovereignty uh, in a nutshell, and if that primes your pump, we can talk about it later. All right, but disclaimer, We are not to handle criminal issues. He's not talking about criminal issues here. The church can and should involve the state in those matters, but that's not what's happening in Corinth. They're not dealing with the criminal issue, they're dealing with the petty. Or actually, they're failing to deal with the petty. They have allowed something that they are responsible to deal with to instead spill out into the public and be handled by those who shouldn't be handling it. Their laziness is on display. That's what it is. Not only to, the, to God who called them to the task, but, but also to those who don't know God yet. Outsiders are getting a picture of their laziness. Whether whether they're trying to or not, a public testimony is being declared in the courts of Corinth. A story is being told one way or the other. The public is getting an impression of how the church handles its business, and it's not a good impression. And so in verse 5, Paul says this, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So the honor of the gospel and the perception of God's people is of such high importance to Paul that he actually argues here that it would be better for them to go ahead and be defrauded than it would be for them to bicker about it in some kind of public court. He says, wouldn't it be better to go ahead and suffer wrong? Oh, but you don't understand. I'm in the right here. I, I deserve fill in the blank. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. But to Paul's point here, maybe the way you're chasing it will end up costing you something more valuable. We can beat around the bush about it, but we can go ahead and lay all our cards on the table. The reason, the reason why the cause of the gospel loses out in your quick-read mental assessment, in your quick-read mental calculus, it's because you don't think highly enough of the cause of the gospel. It's not that fill-in-the-blank is unimportant. It's not that fill-in-the-blank isn't valuable. You just fail to see kingdom realities as more valuable. That's Paul's point. He thinks they're chasing after temporary trinkets in an eternal game. Now, does that mean that God's people should let themselves be taken advantage of within the church? Not at all. In fact, his point right before this was that God had called the church to deal with these things, to adjudicate these things in a holy and redeemed way, right? And that they should never, ever, ever, ever let other people handle it. It should be handled by them and handled righteously by them. So just like last week, there's a tragic failure of leadership here. And that failure spills over into the public, cheapening what should be held dear to them. What should have been protected by them, what should have been esteemed and guarded by them. Well, that, I mean, that sounds great and all. I'd like to, to get there, but how, how in the world do you ever get two people who are fighting over trivial stuff to, to settle their issues within the church? How do you actually get there, right? Like, because that is kind of the rub question, isn't it? Because it assumes two massive, massive realities are in place. One, that both parties are mature enough to actually pursue spiritual answers, right? You kind of have to be there before this can be handled that way, that they value spiritual answers and go looking for spiritual answers rather than running off to someone else to settle it. You kind of have to have that in place. Second reality that this assumes is that both parties see their identity within the church in such a way that it's actually natural for them to submit to some kind of third-party authority. And doesn't that sound like the exact opposite of our current culture? Right? Anybody think that would be hard to pull off today? I mean, we live in the most litigious age in human history. The Corinthians ain't got nothing on the modern Western world. It ain't even close. We are very much a you can't make me until the courts make me kind of a society. It's the air we breathe here. I've mean, So, what Paul is talking about here, man, it's 100% upside down from the wisdom of our world. I've been in ministry 15 years now. People do not see church membership this way. Doesn't matter how many sermons I try to preach, people will go, all right, it's not what I signed up for. And they didn't. Because churches haven't really preached this, right? But is it beautiful? good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? It's incredibly clear that the Corinthians didn't see that yet, not even close. They were still caught up in chasing after cheaper victories. Sadly, it gets worse still. Look at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. All right, simply put, it's really, really hard to pursue a church culture of valuing the cause of the gospel above other things when everybody in that church family is doing what they're currently doing to each other, right? when everybody's actively taking advantage of each other, when everybody's actively looking for ways to to manipulate each other and bilk each other, uh, he says you call each other brothers, but your actions prove otherwise. If You've got family members that are constantly looking to manipulate and overthrow. You don't have a family. You have a soap opera. What you've got is actors playing a role. You can call it a family, but it's a lie. And so in... Paul brings back his favorite phrase in verse 9. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul sees a whole lot of unrighteousness uh, and unrighteous action flowing out of the Corinthian church. And so he drops another don't you know on him right? Something that should have been obvious if you were paying attention. And what's that obvious thing? The unrighteous will not, hear me, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've heard that. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's kind of a more modern time, and I, I really think that we can redefine some things here. Just hear me out. Like, I've been working in the PR field. i got a really good social media account. I think we can take advantage of our current cultural moment and cause some buzz. Tweak some things here and there and get us back to a place where the world thinks we're awesome again. Several problems with that reality. One, the world has never thought we were awesome. Not even close. It's a lie. Secondly, though, Paul doubles down here. He says, don't be deceived. That thing welling up in us to want to fight back, that comes from someplace not good. He says, don't be I know you think yourself wise, and I know you think yourself mature. Last last week we talked about how those in Corinth wrongly saw their acceptance of sin as a badge of honor, right? There's nothing new under the sun. This has been happening ever since we were lied to back in the garden. This is the way we want to deal with sin. It's never the way we've been called to deal with sin, Regardless of whatever the world might choose to celebrate at any given moment, the Bible is crystal clear. The unrighteous do not merely fail to attain the kingdom. They are promised the active, unending wrath of God. Always and forever. And then the Bible begins to list off some things that are in the category of unrighteous. And it's the kind of list that causes people to squirm a little bit and get really uncomfortable, right? Why? Because there's a cultural cost to the list. He mentions the sexually immoral and adulterers, those who practice homosexuality. So if you're the type to, to try and play nice and make sure you never offend, let me go ahead and say it explicitly. Those who find their identities in and chase after their own chosen sexual expression rather than what God has called his people to, they are walking in sin and they will not inherit the kingdom of God, full stop. There's no maybes in there. There's no, there's no exceptions to the rule. It says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know It should be obvious to us. If we were merely reading our Bibles and doing the simple things that God has actually called his people to do, we wouldn't be scratching our heads right now. We wouldn't be trying to squirm in our seat. It would just be the truth. Do you not know? We can play games and try to reframe the issue. We can soft pedal here. We can give a a vague answer there. But at the end of the day, it is never anything more than a blatant disobedience to what God has actually said. Anyone trying to argue otherwise is lying to you. But hey, if you think we're just picking on folks, notice that Paul then next identifies idolaters. Those that elevate created things above the creator. Don't think statue here. Think wrongly placed affections on your stuff and on yourself. Paul says that idolaters... They won't inherit the kingdom of God either. You ever loved something or someone more than you loved God Himself? You ever found rest and satisfaction in someone or something more than God? Do you not know? Don't be deceived. We can we can play games and we can try to reframe the issue. We can soft pedal. We can give vague answers, but at the end of the day, it's nothing more than a blatant disobedience to what God has actually said. Idolaters won't inherit the kingdom of God either. After that, Paul calls out thieves, calls out the greedy. The drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, those with insatiable appetites, those that connive and manipulate to gain just a little bit more, those that attempt to exalt themselves by mocking what they don't understand. Do you not know? Don't be deceived now. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We don't get to play games with this. We don't get to play games with God's word. He has made it abundantly clear what he thinks of the unrighteous. And either A, you're not paying attention right now, or B, you're starting to squirm for a different reason entirely. Because I am the unrighteous. This isn't an exhaustive list of all the sins that are out there, but it's a a list that no one escapes. No one. Myself especially. I I am the unrighteous. And if this is where the story ends, we're all in desperate trouble. Right? But there's a word of hope that's found at the beginning of verse 11. And such were some of you. So in case you're new to the church thing, in case you're new to the Bible, let me, let me explain an absolutely massive truth that might be a brand new reality to you. God's people are not now nor have they ever been those who have successfully managed to keep their record clean. That's not who we are. They are not now nor have they ever been those who have avoided falling into the unrighteous category. God's people are not those who have managed to keep their permanent record clean. God's people are those who have changed categories. They have been moved from the category of unrighteous into the category of righteous, or we can use the the Bible's word for it, the saint. They are those who have changed categories. And I know what you're thinking, oh man, that sounds really, really hard. I don't know if I've got the, the, the willpower and the strength to pull that off. You're absolutely right, you don't. It's incredibly hard. In fact, I'll I'll double down. It's impossible. You can't pull that off. The Bible's crystal clear about that. You are incapable of pulling that off. Not only have I accumulated a mountain of unrighteousness on my ledger, but I woke up this morning adding to the list. I'm in trouble. Anything at all resembling me trying to clean myself up to a point where God is finally pleased with me is not only the most unbiblical idea ever, it's also something that can only ever exist in a fairy tale. Because I know me. I know me. Impossible is an understatement. So how in the world then do people move from one category to the other? How in the world do people get taken from the category of unrighteous and placed into the category of saint? Paul keeps going in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is not now, nor has it ever been, that man has cleaned himself up to the point that God is now pleased with him. The gospel is that God takes those who are unrighteous and he works in their heart and he works in their life to move them to the category of righteous. That's the gospel. How does he do that? Paul says, you were washed. You washed were washed. In other words, you didn't wash you. You didn't take a bath. You were washed. You didn't wash you. God washed you. He took what was dirty. And he took what was unable to be in his presence and he made you clean. How did he do that? Paul follows that by saying you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Sanctified is the same root word as saints. It means to, be, to, be, to become holy and it means to, to be called out, to be made holy. Justified is the word that we looked at a ton when we were, we were studying the book of Romans together. Uh, it's a judicial declaration of innocence. That's justification. Through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, God took the sin of all those who belonged to him and placed it on his son, and the, it was paid for in full and stricken completely from your account. Paid for and removed. The Holy Spirit comes and He illuminates hearts to see their sin and to see their need for a Savior. He calls and God's sheep hear His voice. And so now through a heart that has been changed by Him, they trust, God's people trust in what Jesus has done. Who He is and what He has done are now clothed in His perfect righteousness. In another place in the Bible... Another Second well, Corinthians, even, the next letter that Paul writes, Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says it the same thing a different way. He says that for the sake of him who knew no, uh, for the sake he made him who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called that the Great Exchange. Here in First Corinthians six, Paul just says you are unrighteous. You were unrighteous. But if if you're a follower of Jesus now, that's, that's not who you are. You were, but that's not who you are. God has changed you. So to continue walking brazenly, to continue walking defiantly in unrighteousness is to walk inconsistently with what God in His goodness has already declared you to be. He has changed your status, and you're either walking obediently in that status or you're not. Last week we talked about the idea of leaven. and our, our call is to root out our sin, right? Not because it finally gets us to the, over the edge of God being pleased with us, but because He was pleased to accept the perfect sinlessness of His Son, and He has called you to find your rest, and to find your satisfaction, and to find your salvation, and to find your identity in Him. That's the call. The bickering happening over in Corinth, it was rooted in a gross misunderstanding of this new identity God had declared them. They fought about petty things in a petty way because they continued to tie their identity and they continued to tie their hope to what God had supposedly saved them out of. That's not who they were anymore. They're acting like who they were and because of that those on the outside they got a skewed impression of who the lord of the church was it's a sad day so so what do we what do we do with this stuff right how in the world do you respond to something like this I, can, can you just picture the original audience as they're having this letter read over them for the first time starting to squirm in their seat and get all awkward for those of us who supposedly have it more figured out than them, do we receive it any better? How, how do we respond to God's word this morning? I think if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. And so I think we take stock of the things that we fight for and how we fight for them, Right? it might just tell us what it is we actually value. It might. It might reveal itself to be wholly inconsistent with who he has called us to actually be. I hope but thanks be to God that the pathway, the pathway back is really a lot more simple than we make it out to be. He's called us to himself and he continues to call us to himself. And so really it's as simple as repenting of our sin and beginning to walk Consistently. It's not that complicated. We just start doing what he told us to do. Don't you know? So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time set aside for you to put action to what God is stirring in you. Maybe, maybe you're here and you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe uh, uh, God is calling you to, to be obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe he's calling you to formally join this church family. Maybe he's, it's, he's calling you to say yes to that, to that new opportunity of mission or, or service that he's laying in front of you. It's time to, to, to act on that. And so uh, if you're here this morning and you want to talk about some stuff, I'll be down front here. If you're watching us online, you can use the contact form in the video description. But listen, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and, and I think you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God because of our sin. We could rattle off Paul's list again, but I think it stuck, right? Does it make you feel better? You want me to go back over it? I mean, we could rattle off the sin, but the reality is that we could never, ever, ever exhaust the things that we could add to the list. We're in trouble. At the end of the day, the Bible describes us as thieves of God's glory. He's not fooled by the spiritual games we try to play with our sin. We can try to dress it up. We can try to justify it in smoke and mirrors, but he sees right through it. He isn't fooled. But listen, not only is he not fooled, neither is he the God that makes demands of you without offering the thing to fix the demand. Offers you something infinitely better. He doesn't merely see your sin. He joyfully offers to cleanse your sin. To give you a new identity, and call you his own. So he sent his son, Jesus, the eternal son of God. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to pay the debt of sin that you and I owe. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. You can do that this morning. You don't need me, but I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front. You can use the contact form, whatever your game is. You can respond to Jesus today. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for tough chapters in 1 Corinthians. It would be easy to point out the failures of theirs that we don't have to share. it's a lot more difficult to point out the failures that we do. God, would you humble us before you? Would you call us to repentance over the things that are inconsistent with who you've called us to be? It's sin. It's not some new way of seeing things. It's sin. But you are the God who calls us your own, who gives us rest and walks with us even when the rest of the world doesn't. So Father, would you show us your goodness there? Help us trust you more. God, for our church leadership, would we be more mature than we believe ourselves to be? More spiritually wise than we Like to make ourselves seem. You call us to see sin correctly and deal with it in a way that is pleasing to you and adds to your glory rather than detracts from it. Father, would you, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you call people to yourself even now? Save people today. Draw men and women into your kingdom. Open hearts to, to know, open eyes to see, and ears to hear. Do a mighty work for your name and your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray.